morning, everyone. Good to see you all today. This week, I came across an interesting story, a story of a scientist who learned some very interesting things about behavior in the mind by studying rats. The experiment was conducted by a man named Kurt Richer in the 1950s, and it set out to test the perseverance and determination of rats when they were placed in an incredibly difficult and challenging situation. A group of wild rats were placed into jars full of water in which they could not reach the bottom and touch. I know this might be a little morbid for those of you who really love little animals, and I apologize. (laughs) Feeling trapped... And like they had no chance, each gave up and drowned within minutes. They knew of no way out. The same experiment was carried out on a second group of wild rats, but with one important variable change. Moments before, that first group of rats had given up, stopped swimming, and drowned, the scientist, Kurt, would reach down, pick them up for a brief moment, and then return them to the jar. Whereas the first group of rats drowned within minutes, the second group, which experienced those brief moments of relief, continued swimming for hours. Richard noted that in this way, the rats learned that the situation is not actually hopeless. After the elimination of hopelessness, the rats do not die. In our Exile series, we have been reading the letter of Peter written to Christians who faced their own overwhelming circumstances and constant hostility from the culture that was around them. And as we've seen, however, Peter encouraged them to keep swimming to respond to the overwhelming hostility with love and the gospel message as they now found themselves despised for their faith in their neighborhoods, in their jobs, with their friends, and even with their families as they faced both verbal abuse, slander, unfair treatment, and at times beatings. As Christ had told his followers, you will be hated by everyone because of me. And as his followers today, we should expect nothing less if we are boldly living out our faith and sharing it with others. But when the going gets tough, when hostility from the world causes us to suffer just like the little rats who saw no way out, we need to remember that there is hope. Today, we're going to talk about hope amidst suffering, amidst a hostile world, as we look at 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. And as we look at this passage, we're going to trace three themes, 
three themes that help point us to the promise of hope in a hostile world. First, suffering. Second, deliverance. And third, victory. We're going to look at suffering, deliverance, and victory. Now, before we jump in, I wanted to share a few quotes about our passage today. Because it's kind of a unique passage. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the church, who spent a monumental amount of time studying scripture, once said about our passage, This is a strange text, and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. Now, he's not the only one. The top scholar on Peter's letters, Karen Jobes, notes that even amongst today's interpreters, this passage has the reputation for being perhaps the most difficult in the New Testament. There are a lot of questions that arise when we start to take apart these verses. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to solve them all today. I hate to to spoil that for you. We're not going to be able to solve them all today because there are too many. One scholar theorized that there were actually, in theory, uh, 180 different exegetical combination from these few verses alone. That's a labyrinth for interpreters to try to figure out how each word should be translated properly in relationship to each other. It's a challenging passage. That's a lot of decisions for interpreters to make. Now, I want to clarify. Tim didn't just assign me this passage and then skip town. See you later, Rob. No, I volunteered for it because I love to punish myself. But really, I've preached this passage twice before. It seemed to be becoming almost a yearly habit. Um, And each time I do, I start to question if I got it right the last time. As I start to learn a few more things. And that raises a question for us. How do we... Approach challenging passages in Scripture. How do we approach challenging passages in Scripture? I would suggest that when we come across passages like this that are particularly difficult, we need to approach them with humility, with confidence, and stability. Humility, admitting that we don't know everything. We are not the original author or the Holy Spirit, and we have limited understanding that might need correcting or the insight of others. Confidence, not that we are right all the time or that the Spirit speaks through us in a way that He doesn't do through anybody else, not in ourselves, but that this is still the Word of God inspired by the Spirit, and we should give it the respect and the diligent study that it deserves. And lastly, stability. When we recognize our own limitations in understanding, we should seek the wisdom and the insight of others. 
studying Scripture with friends, looking to leaders, reading theologians and Bible scholars. In other words, don't just pick your favorite commentary or come up with your own special way of interpreting the passage, but look to the perspectives of others in case you have it wrong. I believe a part of why the Lord has given us these difficult parts of Scripture is so that we would learn how to learn together. That we wouldn't just rely on ourselves when it comes to reading Scripture, but that we would have to go to one another to find better understanding. Now, with that in mind, let's dive into this text, briefly look at a few different views on it, and step back to... to see the big picture that it presents. Again, remember from our context that Peter is writing to an audience that is suffering from the hostility of the culture around them and encouraging them to live their faith and preach the gospel even when unfairly suffering. Now that Peter has reminded us to walk this path, to remain faithful, in verses 18 through 22, He tries to encourage us that even though we suffer, Christ is the risen ruler of the cosmos. And we should act accordingly. In verse 18 to 20, Peter says, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now there's a lot going on in these verses. So we're going to break it down just a little bit at a time here. First, we know that Peter has reminded us that as, as his, he's reminded his readers that as they go through suffering, that Christ has suffered for them. He died in their place, taking the penalty of our sins on himself and dying on a cross. And he says why? To bring us back to God. That is where our sins had kept us from a relationship with God. Now we have that again because of his sacrifice. Now verse 18 could mean two different things. It could mean that Christ's soul went somewhere and preached while he was still in the grave. Okay, His soul went somewhere and preached while he was in the grave. Or it could be saying that his body was raised by the Spirit. Either way, we want to remember that Scripture teaches us that he indeed did rise with his physical body on the third day by the power of the Spirit. Now, right off the bat, in verse 19 and 20, there are a few other things we need to consider. And four questions arise as we read this passage. Where did Christ go to preach? Where did he go? Or when did he go? Who did he preach to? What did he preach to them? Was he preaching a second chance? 
or was he preaching judgment and his own victory? Now, there are three, three main views on what could be going on here. The first is that during his three days in the grave, after he had died on the cross, before his resurrection, Christ's spirit, his soul, went to preach to spirits. Or a second option could be that Christ was spiritually preaching through Noah in Noah's day. Or third, and the last option could be that after his resurrection and ascension, he declares his victory over evil. But even if we agree on on these three views, if we pick one that we decide on, there are a few other questions to ask. What did he preach? And to whom? Are we talking about demonic spirits or human spirits? As far as what he preached, I would guess that it's safe to say that he wasn't handing out second chances. After all, we are told in Scripture that after we die, then comes the judgment. We are judged based off the decisions we make in this life. So we don't want to say that this is contradicting other parts of Scripture. So it would seem that whoever he is preaching to, whenever they are, Christ is likely declaring his victory and his judgment of evil. His victory and judgment of evil. And this would be a source of massive comfort to Peter's readers. For them suffering at the hands of a cruel and evil society who hated them because of their faith, would be defeating at times. But Peter is here reminding them, here reminding them that though Christ suffered too, he declares his victory and his judgment over evil. Christ suffered. Peter's audience suffered. And if we live out the Christian life, if we share our faith boldly with others in our communities, we may suffer too. But as we will see in verses 20 through 22, God provides deliverance. God provides deliverance. When the righteous suffer, God provides deliverance. Now, Peter uses three different illustrations in this passage. He's a good preacher. He likes to use a lot of different illustrations. Three different illustrations to show that God delivers. So let's look at the first one in verse 20, which again says that these spirits formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now Peter's first illustration for how God delivers the righteous from an evil world that is under his judgment is the family of Noah. Noah lived in a time when the people around him were hostile and hated God and therefore hated Noah. If you remember back to Sunday school and learning about Noah, you'll remember that wickedness and evil were running rampant through the earth. And as Peter says, God put up with this patiently. But the time for the judgment of wickedness came on humanity. And God called Noah 
and his fam- told Noah and his family that he was going to destroy the world because of sin, but that he would spare Noah and his family. These people, the evil generation of Noah, received a message of repentance, but they didn't respond. Sometimes we will not get that response from the people that we share the gospel with. God judged them, and he delivered some, saving Noah and his family from the waters of death that swept away all the hostile and evil people. So now we've turned to verse 21, where Peter is going to parallel what happened to Noah to the Christian life. When we come to verse 21, things get a little tricky again. It reads, baptism, which corresponds to this, that is, it corresponds to the floodwaters, now saves you. Now, at first glance, this might make us all a little bit nervous. We might wonder, wait, is Peter saying, if I, if I haven't been baptized, I won't be able to be saved and enjoy eternity in heaven and the new earth with God? But no, that isn't what Peter is saying. In fact, he goes on in the verse to clarify that that's not what he means. The commentator Karen Jobes offers a very helpful English translation here. The verse reads, This flood also symbolizes baptism, which saves you, not the putting off of filth from the flesh, but rather the pledge of a good conscience to God. So there are two different ways of taking this verse. Either Peter is talking just about our spiritual baptism, when the Spirit comes upon us when we believe, or he is pointing out how being baptized in water represents what happens when we first believe. But either way, whatever Peter is going with here, Peter says that the salvation from the flood was a symbol that foreshadowed what was to come for us. He says, not the washing off of dirt. In other words, being dunked in water doesn't save you. Being dunked in water doesn't save you. It symbolizes what has happened to us spiritually when we first put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. Water baptism represents the washing away of sin that we receive because of the death of Christ on the cross for our sins. It represents dying to ourselves and our sin and coming alive again in Jesus Christ. Baptism isn't how forgiveness is applied. It is only given by God through unearned grace and applied to us in faith. So the parallel that Peter is making here with the flood is this. Death because of sin came through the flood waters, but Noah was delivered from death. When we are baptized in water, it represents us dying to our sin, but coming to life once again in Jesus Christ. Now I take this as Peter indicating for us just how closely the ideas of believing and being baptized are. 
water baptism doesn't save us, but it is a response to our faith. It is an outward demonstration to others of our faith. I think an illustration is helpful here. For those of us that are married, our wedding ring doesn't make us married. You can lose that thing and you're still married. Thankfully for a lot of people who have a tendency to let those things fall down drains and other things. Our vows and our commitments before God and others make us married. But we know that the people, that people are married when they wear a ring. It symbolizes their marital vows. In the same way, we are say, when we are saved, water baptism acts a lot like a ring. As a public profession of our commitment to our faith. And a reminder of our new relationship. Peter is reminding his readers that their baptism represents what they have publicly that they have publicly committed to live for God. It's a reminder to them that they have publicly committed to live for God. Just like a wedding ring keeps us accountable, so baptism should be a public reminder of our commitment to live for Jesus, no matter what the world throws at us. So there are three parallel uh, illustrations that Peter is using here, as I've said before. Three parallel illustrations that Peter is using to remind us that God delivers the righteous when they suffer. The first is Noah, who was delivered from God's judgment on a sinful world. And the second is baptism, which represents our deliverance to life in Christ. But as we have been seeing in verses 18 and 19, Peter is reminding us that Christ suffered too, to the point of death. And now Peter reminds us at the end of verse 21 of the wondrous truth that Christ too was delivered from his suffering, from death to life in his resurrection. He goes on in verse 21 to say that Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Though seeming to suffer death on a cross, we know for certain that the stone was rolled away again. Christ was delivered from death to life. And as risen Lord, Peter reminds us that Christ has undisputedly been established as the ruler of the cosmos, sitting at the right hand of God. Because his resurrection demonstrates to the universe that he is indeed the only victor over every power of evil in the cosmos. His resurrection demonstrates to the universe that he is indeed the only, only victor over every power of evil. Peter reminds us that no no matter how dark things get, no matter how powerful evil seems in our universe, they are judged by the one true 
king who sits victoriously at his father's right hand. Everything, everything is under his rule. Peter is calling us in the darkest of circumstances when the world hates and hurts us most to follow the pattern of our Savior. Suffering just as He did. Following that same path of suffering, of deliverance, and victory. Knowing that this path was established has established Christ as the undisputed ruler of everything. So we too, as his followers, should take heart and find hope to follow Christ, our Savior, when the world mistreats us, when we suffer. Because we know that even if we suffer death, our bodies will be raised again. We will be delivered and we will share in his glorious victory, reigning with him in the new heaven and the new earth for all eternity. Peter has been calling us in previous verses of this letter to remain faithful when the world around us is hostile, to live Christ-like lives and to readily share the gospel in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, and in our communities. And now he has reminded us that even when we face the hostility of the world around us, there is hope. Hope seen through this pattern established by our Savior of suffering, deliverance, and victory. Back in 1963, George Wallace defied the federal court by standing in front of the doors of the University of Alabama in order to keep two black students from entering in. He said, you'll enter in here over my dead body. He was maintaining a system of segregation in the University of Alabama at that time. But... The U.S. government responded by sending down U.S. marshals to escort the two students. Governor Wallace was told, you have two choices. You can remove yourself from in front of these doors, or we can remove you. But one thing is going to be the case. You're, going, you're not going to block the law of the United States which says that you must not maintain segregation at this university. Things are going to change today. Now, you decide whether you're going to get out of the way or whether we're going to get you out of the way. But you need to know that you will be out of the way. The powers of evil want to block you from faithfully walking the same path as your Savior. The evil in our universe wants to deter us from living out Christ-like faith and speaking the gospel message boldly to the world around us. Our friends will oppose us. Our bosses may oppose us. Our neighbors may oppose us. And yes, 
sometimes our own families will oppose our faith. But evil does not have the final say. There is another court in heaven ruled by an undisputed king that one day will send in the marshals and overrule every power of evil that tries to block our path. As we have been discussing for several weeks now, we have been reminded that when we suffer for our faith, we are to model Christ-like humility and to share our faith. Last week we heard about Peter calling us to live good lives even if we're slandered by unbelievers. He also told us that we are to be ready to share our hope, our faith in Christ with those that we come into contact with. But that is not easy when things become hostile. The path that Peter is telling us that we are called to involves suffering. It involves suffering. But Peter has reminded us that whereas we may seem at times to be defeated now, we may seem to be defeated now, there is a guarantee of deliverance later. We may not see that this side of the grave. We may not. But the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the reign of Jesus Christ again is certain. Because Christ is already ruler. He is already the victor. That should bring us hope. That should give us courage to live boldly for Christ and share the gospel now. Even if it brings us trouble. I'm certain that many of us have been burned for our faith before. Those of us who have experienced hostility from unbelievers. As I have shared previously, this, these messages hit home for me because I think of relatives who have cut themselves off from my family because of our faith. I think of people close to me who have outperformed others in their jobs doing the best they can being the most successful at their jobs being faithful only to be denied promotions because they were faithful to the Christian life and didn't run with the bad boys at work if we live our faith out boldly we will face hostility at school at work with friends, with relatives, with our neighbors. Sometimes, when circumstances seem bleak, a bit of perspective of the bigger picture can bring us hope again. We can be sure of God's promises of our futures because His promises in the past have never failed, have they? That is why Peter has drawn our attention to Noah and Christ today. What God has done, he will do again. His promises have never failed in the past, and his promises will not fail in the future, no matter how bleak things get now. 
we need to be reminded of this. When things become bleak, make sure that you are with other believers and with your church so that you can be reminded of God's faithful deliverance and the hope that we have in Christ. When God's world is hostile towards you, regularly be in the word with other believers that could, so that we can remind each other of the hope that we have. And if you haven't pursued that public symbol of your faith, baptism, if you haven't pursued that yet, maybe it's time to get in touch with Pastor Tim. Your baptism should serve as a public pledge holding you accountable to your brothers and sisters that you're going to walk the path of faith faithfully. That you're going to stay on the path that you've been put on when you first believe. And when things get difficult, when the world is hostile towards us, I hope, I hope that your baptism reminds you that God does deliver the righteous from death to life. Don't lose out on the opportunity to have that kind of symbolism in your life, reminding you of your faith and of the hope that you have. And don't lose hope. Don't let yourself be like that first group of rats who consumed to the apparent despair and gave up. Remember that we do have hope. For we are called onto the same path as our Savior. The path of the cross and the empty tomb. The path of the cross and the empty tomb. The path of suffering, deliverance, and victory. He laid that groundwork for us. He walked it on our behalf. And now there is no room for disputing that there is no power of evil in the entire universe that could thwart his rule. He is the undisputed victor. He gets the final say. When we suffer, we have hope that one day we too will be delivered and we will share in his victory. As Christ himself reminds us, in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Lord, though it is a challenging one, it is quite clear on its message at the end that we are called to suffer just as our Lord, that we are called to live out our faith boldly and clearly to those around us. And Lord, that you do not, you do not turn away from the righteous when they suffer. When the world turns its back on us, Lord, you hear our prayers and you will deliver us. Christ is victorious and he has the final say as the victor, as the ruler of the cosmos. 
So, Lord, I pray for this congregation and for the other Christians up here on the hill who are meeting at their churches today, that you would instill boldness into us, that we would live for you in our communities without fear. And, Lord, that when that fear does come, when we are tempted to dismay because of how the world reacts to us, that we would look to the pattern of our Savior, we would remember that though we suffer now, there is hope of deliverance and victory later. Lord, remind that of us. Instill it in our hearts. I pray this in the name.